I'm Tom from the Ballpark Bros. Here's Mike. This next presentation on the Four-Eyed Radio Network is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off on your order. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Welcome back, Eric and Steve here, and we are stretching our legs again with another episode of the Crichton Cast. Yes, finally, good to be back. It is. It's very odd. Uh, you know, you obviously, um, it's been a little while, Eric, since we talked, so we just had to sp- you know, spend a few minutes going back and forth with each other and kind of uh, <laughs> relearning a few things, even though we always are catching up on Twitter and know what each other's doing in our lives. Uh, it's odd when you're talking back and forth on somebody at the microphone that's in a different state. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, It's been a crazy past couple of months. Um, you know, obviously you, you had a birthday in there. You had some uh, family yeah. stuff. I had some family stuff. Uh, I, I was busy podcasting over with the guys at Starfleet Escape Podcast, uh, Aaron and Eric Berry over there um, with Discovery coming out. So we've been uh, talking Discovery for the past uh, several weeks. Uh, if you're watching Discovery, I highly recommend checking that out on the Four Eyed Radio Network Starfleet Escape Podcast. Yeah, no, it's been kind of fun. Well, and this, um, and then I also had I do a lot of filming projects on the side, so we had some fun stuff going on there. And uh, follow me on Twitter. It's Stephen Mastin, and you can keep up with some of that. And then also follow Eric, of course, on Twitter and keep up with some of those other side projects. We won't go too much into that on our own this podcast. Uh, but when, how this started was um, you had a horrible like cough or something like that took you out for almost a month. Yeah, I, I was I, I had caught a cold or something, and it caused a sinus infection. And then the sinus infection developed into a cough that just would not go away. I ended mm-hmm. up going to the doctor several times. I had several several rounds of antibiotics to try to get rid of this thing and I still actually to this day will occasionally uh, just go into a random coughing fit and it's it's so bad because I when I'm coughing I cannot breathe at all and I will get to the point where I'm coughing so much that I get lightheaded and dizzy and uh, it's awful but um, other than that feeling much better but yeah that was just a, a miserable couple of months there just trying to get better and it didn't seem that anything was working. I, you know, every time I, I would finally get to the point where it was starting to calm down, then my sinuses would start acting up again, more drainage, more coughing. And then it was like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me with this. 
Right. No, and so that kind of started our little bit of a hiatus we took, and then, yeah, we got into other side projects, and finally we're back together again. So the band is back together, and mm-hmm. uh, we're going to talk about this uh, book written by John Lange, this gentleman. You probably, well, if you're a Michael Crichton fan, you've heard of him, but if you're not, then you're wondering who the heck this guy is. <laughs> who is this, John Lang or Lange? Is it is it Lange or Lang? I know it's got the E um, at the end, so it's I, I've never actually... That's what throws me out. In my head, I always do it Lange, uh, which sounds horrible, actually, (laughs) when I say it out loud, because it's John Lang, um, I think. And it's a German word, isn't it? Uh, That's where he came up with this, um, because it's a German word or something like that that actually means uh, very tall um, is what it is. Uh, man, I, I'm going to have to figure that out for sure, but I'm pretty sure it was German. But that's the whole reason. John is just, you know, John Doe, whatever. But this this was a Michael Crichton pseudonym because he wrote books to pay for med school. And he found out that, oh, hey, I can write a book and sell it for $2,500, and that pays for some of my med school. And so we have, what, half a dozen books. They call them the Med School Years Collection on his um, actual official website Yeah, uh, that are books that he wrote under the pseudonym of John Lange. And that's what he would do. He said, oh, I could write a book in a weekend or two and just sit down and do it and pay for so that's where this came from and Lange was yeah it was a uh, um, German word for very tall (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right well that's a I mean if you're going to pick a pseudonym I mean I could that that would be a good criteria from myself to choose a pseudonym I suppose but uh, that one's taken so I'll have to choose a different word (laughs) yeah they'll say well and you know I mean the guy was almost seven feet tall he was six foot nine so I mean this is a guy that was standing up there with major basketball players so he's got three inches on me and people always uh, you know are like oh my god so yeah Uh, definitely yeah Anyway, so he wrote this book called uh, Binary that came out in 1972, and at the same time, there was a made-for-TV film um, based off this book called Pursuit. The really neat thing is this was also his directorial debut um, as Michael Crichton. Yeah, I understand that he wanted to write the screenplay as well, but he had already convinced the producers to allow him to direct it, and they were like, okay, you have no experience writing a screenplay, you have no experience directing, we'll let you do one or the other. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But but we're not letting uh, you do both for the first time on this one. Um, So he did not end up writing the screenplay, although he did direct the film. Right. No, Robert Dozier wrote the uh, actual screenplay, but uh, he did direct it first. And so this was his directorial debut. And the really neat thing is he went from this straight to his next uh, director was um, Westworld. On this particular one, though... um, Let's well, I guess let's go right into talking about the book itself. This was a um, I want to say this is a quick read. You know, this is one of those books uh, like I'm sure most of these John Lange books are. I honestly have not read all of them that it was 240 pages or something. Um, it's a quick read, a quick audio book. And this is a kind of a, a, a caper is what it is. You've got your good federal agent and you've got your bad guy and you've mm-hmm. got your bomb. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's so real a lot quick, of that's typical. simple as far as the, the plot goes. There's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, background information on a lot of different people you get pretty much the the character development is in the story it's not you know we're not we're not spending three or four chapters developing each of these characters everybody's kind of developing on the fly 
And what I think is great is that even in that short amount of time, even in that style, we do get decent character development for basically our two main characters. You know, we've got our two major players in this book, and those two get developed fairly well. And all the side characters are just kind of side characters, and that's fine in this particular format. Yeah, like you said, a very, very quick read. The audiobook checks in under five hours for the unabridged version. So it's, um, you know, if you want to sit down and read this book, it's not going to take you more than five hours if you go through it just straight through. And if you're a fast reader, it might even be quicker than that. Um, I definitely did read it in one sitting the first time through. And then when I reread it again, when I thought we were going to have an opportunity (laughs) to record this episode previously, um, I had reread it again and I I did it in two sittings that time. You know, I split it up that time. And uh, I've listened to to the audiobook several times now as well in preparation. So I've actually uh, consumed this book probably more than uh, any other single book that I've done for uh, for a podcast or anything. <laughs> Just because of these uh, times when we thought we would be recording this episode. Yeah, I mean, I even yeah. I re-listened to the audiobook yesterday while I was at work. Um, the audiobook is available on Audible. It's not even very expensive, and um, you can play it at... What I love about Audible is that it has the variable speed options. So you can speed up, you can get through a book a little bit faster if you're willing to to speed up the audio. And certain narrators, you can't really speed them up too much or it sounds weird. But the narrator for this audiobook was such that I was able to listen to it at twice normal speed and it wasn't distorted or weird. Um, in fact, it made some of the action sequences seem somewhat more exciting even, I think. Okay. I'll have to check that out and try that. I haven't listened to any of these audiobooks in uh, two times speed or anything like that. So I'll have to do that with this particular one. You bring up an interesting point with the uh, action sequences and stuff. I thought they were really great reading this book. I didn't think that played out so well in the film version of it. I actually thought because this is such a great quick read for a book that the movie, even though it's only an hour and 14 minutes long, still dragged at some points. But I also had to get it wrapped around my head. This is a 1970s movie. And I mean, come on, even the music and the audio alone just harkens to an old Chips TV show. Uh, well, yeah, the, uh, the music was part of one of my favorite things about the film, actually. Um, yeah. It was so fitting for the time. Uh, Jerry it, it Goldsmith really did the music, and uh, he, he's done a lot of stuff for a lot of shows. Um, you know, the other thing to consider is that this was a made-for-TV movie. This was intended to have commercial breaks. And you notice that. a couple. There's a few times when you notice, like, oh, okay, here's where they would have cut to commercial. So it's not done in the traditional film sense where you're intended to watch it all the way through. There are points where it's intended to break and that's where I think like you said it does have the tendency to drag just a little bit and I think it's where they're preparing for okay we've got to put a break in here for commercials if it were written and designed as a traditional film I don't think we would have had those points it also could have been you know 45 minutes long <laughs> that's very true yeah it would have really been cut back um, but back to what you said the there are only two really main characters in this and we'll call I'll call them by their last names because their first names changed <laughs> but uh, Graves and Wright which I get why they changed because in the book they're both Johns they're John yeah. Graves and John Wright <laughs> Michael Crichton really liked the name John really under the name John Lang and then he writes the book with both main characters named John (laughs) but yeah throughout most of the book they're referred to by their last names anyway so it's in fact I had to I I did a double take when I was looking at the synopsis I'm like oh they okay they were were both named John I didn't really catch that the first time through because uh, they're always called Graves and Wright 
Mm-hmm. So and uh, so uh, Graves is the federal agent that is tasked with capturing Wright, and Wright is this million dollar multimillionaire who has this devious plan to pretty much not blow up but poison and gas a million people in San Diego specifically the Republican National Convention's going on the president's going to be visiting and he's ready to just wipe the slate clean and start all over so he's got this entire thing yeah he's the a fun- political extremist specifically like his his beef is with the politics of the United States he doesn't think that the president is is doing his job he doesn't think that Congress is doing his job and he's trying to wipe out as many major players in the US government at once by taking out an entire political party, including uh, the president, which happens to belong to this party at that time. Right. And what's interesting is reading the first few chapters of this book, um, you could have told me that this was written last year. <laughs> you know, especially with just uh, uh, the um, um, the guys that are stealing the gases themselves, mm-hmm. the, the uh, ZV gas or whatever it was, you know, just that action scene and everything like that and stealing it off this train and stuff. I was like, I mean, that could have happened last year or 10 years ago, not 40 years ago almost that we are now. Yeah, the technology was not, uh, so, you know, the only difference might have been, you know, they would have had would have had cell phones to communicate with each other or something like that, but they didn't need it. Yeah. Everything was no. so well planned. And that was the, the point to that whole sequence was that everything was so well planned land that everything just it went off without a hitch even though they you know they had the unexpected there were guards on the train they weren't expecting there to be guards on the train but it didn't matter because they were prepared just in case and so yeah there the the actual uh, heist in the book definitely uh, kind of timeless Mm-hmm. No, it told, it completely was, and um, and and yeah, you're right. Except for the few times when technology is brought up in the book, you know, I think there was one time where he had to go to a, a police station to receive a fax or something like that. I can't remember. But, yeah, you know, he so, had to go somewhere to get uh, get. Uh, they didn't call it a fax. It was like a visual. It was it was like the next step up from a fax. Basically, they were basically sending him information uh, in visual form. It, it was essentially a fax, but they they needed a specific type of machine to receive this particular information just on any ordinary fax machine wouldn't have worked. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, so beyond that, though, there's so much of the stuff that's going on in here from the political standpoint, and even just, I mean, today we would have called J- uh, John Wright a uh, a terrorist, you know, because mm-hmm. of what he was planning on doing in this bomb. And so, there's so much of the stuff that um, is interesting that this makes a good read for somebody that was just born in the last couple of decades. You wouldn't have to be interested in what was going on in the 70s at all. Yeah, the actual politics of it aren't really brought up all that much. You know, they. They briefly in the movie, it's hardly brought up at all. Really, the only mention of politics is they, you know, show the Republican National Convention a little bit, and you know, just and and not so much in the fact that they show anything going on, just the fact that oh, here's a bunch of people in a big space. Like that's all they're being shown for is the fact that there's a lot of people concentrated in one area. This is what's at stake here: is that he's going to kill all of these people. Whereas the actual politics of it are hardly mentioned, uh, especially right. in the film. In the book, the only thing that's that's briefly mentioned is the president's current policies on China. They don't mention what those policies are, only that Wright disagrees with whatever they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, and that's what it is. And because the main story on this thing is the relationship between Graves and Wright, because you really have the dichotomy of 
two extremely smart people who are playing a chess game with each other. I love the fact that Wright, you know, goes as far as getting the psychological uh, information on Graves, and he's really playing into exactly how Graves is. And Graves is aware of this and finds out at some point. Um, it just makes for like like their best friends and best enemies type of thing. Yeah, uh, Wright basically has this whole Bond villain thing going for him, where he is purposely leading on the detective following him. He could have gotten away with this. He could have gotten away with this very easily. He specifically left a trail of breadcrumbs so that he would get this person involved. You know, he wanted Graves involved in this. He wanted him to be a part of the plan, basically. If he had chosen, you know, all he had to do was basically let intermediaries take care of a few things here or there, and they wouldn't have even suspected him of anything at that point. Like, he was only under suspicion because he was seen with specific people. And because he was seen with them, then they looked into what these guys were doing. Oh, well, this guy, you know, he's, see, he's been seen with this guy over here. And then we figured out that this guy broke into this database and pulled out this information. Or he pulled out some information. They didn't even know what he had pulled out at that point. Um, <clears throat> so all he had to do was use an intermediary for a couple of little things. And nobody would have even known anything was happening until it was all over. But that's not what Wright wanted. Wright wanted to play the game, just like Graves did. And that's what mm-hmm. makes this story so fascinating. It truly does. And because you're watching and reading along with this, you're uncovering the mystery of what Wright is doing. I mean, I love the fact, you know, he's purposely opening the window shades in this room and, and he's showing Graves what he's doing and he's taunting him. And then Graves realizes he's letting him do that. So, I mean, there's just this whole mystery to it. Yeah, you get these bits and pieces, you know, you uh, Wright is stringing Graves along along in some ways and Graves is stringing right along in some ways too he's not really revealing everything that he knows um, so they, they've got this this kind of thing going on and at one point I think you know you even get to the point where Wright knows that okay you know what he's not close enough he's not going to get close enough to me if I don't give him something and that's when you, you end up getting the uh, you know played in the movie of course by Martin Sheen the <laughs> top build Martin Sheen if you get the DVD of this who plays a like minute part in the film but he's the biggest name to come out of it the the character of timothy drew who is the computer guy who breaks into the database and gets the information on the shipments of these gases and the psychological profile of graves so you have that and without them catching him they don't they don't get to the end game and Wright realizes that, okay, they haven't found Drew. I need to lead them to him. So he literally goes and pays Drew in person and tells him, hey, you want to get out of San Diego before tonight? You know, like he makes sure to let him know something's happening here, something's happening today, and I know that I'm being followed, and I led them directly to you. Like he sp- he gave them Drew on a platter so that they could get just a little bit closer because he didn't think they were close enough. And part of his plan hinged on Graves becoming involved. Right. Yeah, because Graves needed to be involved because Graves was part of one of the switches. And in this whole thing, right, the bad guy is definitely the smarter of the two. You know, Graves kind of gets in his own way sometimes. Uh, is how I spell it because Wright did need to lead him along in some points and say, hey, I'm right here and wave his hand and stuff. So, yeah, there were there were moments I, I wouldn't necessarily say that Graves was uh, not as smart as Wright. But I think, like you said, he did get 
in his own way. And just like his psychological profile said, you know, he sometimes he he'll sacrifice quality for speed. And that's where I think they ran into trouble. You know, there were times when he was trying to get something done as fast as possible instead of as well as possible. And that's where the, the disconnect took place. If he had just taken a little bit more time to, to think things through... But there were a couple of uh, breaks that they got in order to uh, to get there in the end. And that's uh, that's another great part of the story is that he, they, the good guys didn't win because they were so much better than the bad guy. They actually mm-hmm. got a couple of lucky breaks. And right. that's what really, uh, you know, that plus what Wright was handing them was what enabled them to eventually uh, win the day, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we should talk about the, the plot that Wright had. You know, he's got this this nerve gas that he stole, you know, the opening scene of the movie and the book. The book, so much better, this heist, than the movie. The movie, I really... Um, the movie was just gangsters shooting him up. Yeah, it, first of all, it wasn't even it was a train. It was. it was just some no. car. You know, they were just transporting all this by truck, and then they run across to... There's a road close sign in the middle of the road, and all the army guys are like what's this this road isn't supposed to be closed and then you know shooting out of the darkness everybody's dead they steal the canisters and go away it's like okay well Mm -hmm. that was certainly quick and to the point i mean but one of the best things about the book is this original heist this whole setup for them getting the gas the planning that needed to be involved when we get don't get that at all in the film and so it really set me up when I'm first watching this to be like, whoa, okay, so they are taking some serious liberties here. And then it got better. Then the, then the movie started to track along with the book a little bit better after that point. So it, it was kind of interesting that they would choose to do that and then then basically go back. And from that point forward, with a, with a few minor exceptions that we'll discuss, it did pretty much follow the book. Yeah, I was happily surprised, actually, because except for that really beginning opening scene, which is a bummer to me because I kind of think like in a, made, in a movie, and I'm sure it's just budgetary, but if you had this train heist going on in the beginning, like that's going to grab you and you're going to watch the rest of this. So I think they kind of missed the boat there. But from a budget standpoint, all right, let's just do a Jeep and a couple of moron uh, <laughs> army guys. And, hey, we've got our binary B75 slash 76. So um, yeah. I loved the fact, though, that, yeah, a lot of this bo- – I read the book first and then watched the movie. So a lot of the movie was really played out how I imagined in my head. Like he did a great job, a lot like I think happened with Andromeda Strain where uh, this it, – it was slower, but it really felt like I was reading the book type of thing. Yeah, they did a good job past that opening scene. There were a couple mm-hmm. of other things that they left out, I guess, for time, which doesn't make sense considering, you know, like we said, the whole movie clocked in at 1 hour, 14 minutes. Uh, they could have easily made it a little longer and included the additional uh, bits that they left out, which wasn't even all that much. They didn't leave a ton out, and there was a little bit of change. The, the only other major change, uh, that scene that you mentioned in the book where he has to go find a fax machine, a special fax machine to receive this information, what he was receiving mm-hmm. was a copy of his own psychological profile from the Department of Justice, and in the movie, they switch that around where he goes and talks to his actual psychiatrist, who was also approached by Wright under an assumed name. And he had all these phony documents to, to be able to go in there and talk to him and get information from his psychiatrist. I didn't like that bit at all either, because I'm like, OK, now you're making it seem like Wright was able to fake his way past 
doctor-patient confidentiality, which seems odd. Um, right. Whereas in the other, in the book, it was much more plausible because it was a psychological profile done for work. So there was no confidentiality there. It was done for his job, and it was on file. So it made more sense for him to steal that from the computers than for him to, uh, you know, do some social engineering on the psychiatrist himself. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure why they made that change. I don't know if did that make sense to you in some way? Did you see why um, they made that change? No, I, I, I didn't see why they made that change, except for the fact, you know, maybe the technology that Michael Crichton wanted wasn't really readily available for this fax type thing. I didn't see the, any reason for the change, and I, I thought it actually ruined it a little bit more because it gave Wright, it made him to, to be a better bad guy than he was, like you said, a craftier um, type of bad guy. Uh, the doctor kind of looked like a moron when uh, Graves said, oh, no, that's so-and-so, and... I mean, it wasn't like a ruiner or anything like that. I just, I, yeah, it, it, I think just he could have done differently, yeah. It did take me out of the moment, having read the book and, you know, watching the movie and going like, so why did they choose to go about it this way? Like, they really make this doctor seem like a bad doctor, first of all, because he's just talking about his patient with anybody. Um, they didn't make it clear, as, as it was in the book, that it was a psychological profile done for his employment, and therefore it would not be protected by confidentiality. So you don't really get that sense in the film. You think, Stocks are just telling this guy? I'm like, stop seeing that doctor guy because, you know, <laughs> what's going on? Mm -hmm. um, also, the fact that uh, why would his doctor, if he lives in Washington, D.C. the majority of the time, why would his doctor just be readily available in California for him to go sit down and have lunch with? <laughs> to have lunch um, real quick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole point of them having to have the fax machine in the in the book was because all of that information was in Washington, D.C., and this was all happening in San Diego, and L.A. was the closest point that they had with all the, the technological needs, but they were in San Diego where they didn't have access to all of their home base equipment, basically. Mm -hmm. It added to the drama. So uh, just another little thing where the book got it way better than the movie, and I don't understand the need for the change because it didn't really fill any time. I could kind of understand the technology, you know, if they don't want to try to introduce it. You know, most people aren't going to understand these fax machines at this point. Okay, fine. Just have somebody at the other end of the phone reading him his profile. That's right. fine. You know, that would have been acceptable. But, yeah, making that change, it, it seemed unnecessary, and it did take me out of the moment a little bit, thinking, why is this doctor so dumb? Yeah. No, that was kind of it. Uh, more than anything else, I felt like, oh, well, this doctor's kind of an idiot. And and we moved on, and it, it, it wasn't a huge game changer or anything for me. I think it just felt out of place, um, yeah. specifically if you're off of just reading the book and paying attention. Yeah, the the important part was that the information was uh, provided, and what he needed to know was that Wright knew what this profile said, and that the profile said that he would sacrifice quality for time. So he would sacrifice doing something the best he could do it to do it faster, and that he would sometimes have problems due to overconfidence, thinking that he'd finished solving something that wasn't quite finished. They said that it was either half done or two-thirds done, um, and that's really where... That's that's where Wright was playing into that profile, right? Um, and that's the biggest one, that last one there, because we've that gets reused as a voiceover in the film because it's so important to realize the job's not really done. Yeah, especially that half done or two thirds done, because that's the thing where they get tripped up. And that's again, they do it much better in the book because they add, um, you know, something they left out of the movie was this assassination that they think 
Wright was responsible for, but they never had the proof, but they were pretty sure it was Wright who assassinated this, this oil man by planting a bomb in his car. The bomb was found by his driver, and he took it out and, then of, and disarmed the bomb. And mm-hmm. then, of course, the the guy, being who he was and being who Wright knew he was, took a look in the engine to take a look at the supposedly disarmed bomb. And then the secondary bomb went off. So they've got this whole double whammy thing they're talking about in the book that we didn't get in the movie. They, they kind of skipped over that part. And uh, in the book, it's important because they're talking about, oh, Wright is the master of the double whammy. And at one point, they think they've figured out the two parts of the double whammy already. And that's when you get that that kind of nagging voice in the back of the head. Well, maybe it's only two-thirds finished. Maybe there's Mm -hmm. a triple whammy. And everybody's, oh, no, he couldn't be thinking that far ahead. There couldn't be a third thing. And that's that's really the key when he figures out, no, something else is going to happen. So, you know, the plot of Wright in this is to distribute this gas. We've got this gas, and the binary part of it is not important for the gas, but it is important to the story because the whole story is about these two-part systems. It's a, the gas is in two parts. The plot requires Wright and Graves. Uh, yeah, the antidote parts. to the gas is two parts. You know, he has to mm-hmm. have the, uh, the the two chemicals in order to, to, to satisfy it. You know, everything is about these two part systems that are required for anything to happen and it's very very uh it's it's all tied together quite well for for something that's such a short quick read and you don't really think of it as being too cerebral but then you get these little details like how all of these different two-part systems are being mentioned so you're you're constantly being brought back to the reason it's called binary in the first place and it becomes a lot deeper than you first think it is after you finish that read. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I bec- you've read the book multiple times and watched the movie multiple times, so have I. But after watching the movie for a third time, I realized something. And, you know, spoiler alert here. So we'll give you two seconds to decide to stop and go watch the movie or read <laughs> the book. Um, I was heartbroken when Wright dies because... You're missing one of those two parts. And all of a sudden, even if Graves wins, like it's almost depressing because he beat the mastermind. You know, he beat this bad guy, but the bad guy's not there to realize it. So like when Wright dies, I feel like a part of Graves died. Like one part of that binary is missing now. Yeah, exactly. You you really do get that sense, especially in the book, um, because they make such a point. He's trying so hard to keep them like Wright is, is getting away. He's running out of this room and the cops are ready to shoot him in the back. And he knocks the gun out of his, you know, knocks the gun out of the way. He's like, no, don't kill him. We need we we might need information that he has, you know, to solve this. And then he gets away. And of course he only dies because Graves at the last minute decided to, to put up roadblocks in like a whole like three block radius of this, of this apartment building where all this is going down. He wasn't even sure he was going to do that originally. And that's the one thing that Graves, uh, that, that Wright hadn't taken to, into account that Graves would do. And that's the one thing that ended up being his, his failure, his, his wrong move. The only thing that he did wrong. Right. Um, on the other hand, it did give, it, that was the only reason 
that Graves ended up thinking, maybe I can win this. Maybe we can beat this because he was feeling defeated. He was, he thought I've been beat, right? Beaten. Mm -hmm. He won. And then somebody points out, well, he did make a mistake. He didn't know you were going to have that roadblock. He ended up dying. And that's when he, it clicks for him. It's like, you're right. He did make a mistake. He can yep. make a mistake, which means we can still we can still win this. And then he starts remembering like, okay, you know, we're not done. This problem isn't finished. We need to figure out what else is going on. And then that, that kind of brings us to the, the, the one complaint that I do have about this, oh. this book's plot. Um, okay. I've I got a couple of things. One of them is just a small nitpicky detail. I always have my one little nitpicky detail. You know, he didn't mention any poisonous snakes this time around. But well, there that's was, good. That's good. Thank God. <laughs> but there was one little nitpicky detail that I thought was uh, annoying that, that transferred. They did it in both. They did it exactly the same in both the book and the film. And I was like, oh, come on, guys. That's not right. Um, but the, the thing that bugged me, the bigger thing that bugged me, is that in both the book and the movie, they completely forget about the explosives that they already know exist. In the book, <laughs> they know that the, the, the plastic explosive was hijacked. And in the movie, they make it or um, yeah, in, in the movie, they make them actually kind of find it in the warehouse. And they're like, oh, look, you know, they so they know that there's that, that Wright had the explosives. Yeah. And then they know that the explosives are somewhere in that room because they use the sniffer on the door and they they know that there's explosives somewhere in that room. And then they completely forget about that <laughs> for a good hour where they're just like, well, OK, we're done here. Everything's good. Not one person's like, hey, um, weren't there supposed to be explosives on the other side of that door? Like, did anybody has anybody checked to find out where the explosives were that we that the sniffer found? We know there's 20 pounds of C4 somewhere. That's a big boom. <laughs> we should probably figure out where that went. And right. in the book, there's even an added element where they had hijacked some radioactive isotopes from a, from a hospital, from like an ambulance, just so that there'd be a radioactive element involved as well. They completely left that out of the movie, and I guess that was probably just for time. It was just another misdirection by Bright to, to you know, throw them out. You know, what's he doing? Is he doing, you know, is he going to be attacking with a bomb? Is he going to be attacking with a, a dirty bomb? Is it going to be this gas? You know, they didn't know what he had going on. And so they had this added element of the radioactive isotope that was stolen from this ambulance. Um, they left that completely out of the movie. And it wasn't desperately needed, but it was just a little added thing that you get from the book that you don't get from the film. But even well, but in both the book and the movie, everybody completely forgets that these explosives exist for like a long time. <laughs> they do. And the problem with that is that the sniffer told them that it was there, that there was explosives there, because I get it if um, you didn't have that part because it was all misdirection. He stole a bunch of C4. He stole his radioactive isotope. He's got these two. You have no idea how he's going to attack. And that was the point of like the radioactive isotope. Yeah. But the fact that the sniffer said there was explosives in the room and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, yeah, we got the two gases separated. Nobody's going to die. No. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, guys, nobody remembered that there was explosives involved here. And then the little nitpicky detail is when they finally uh, realize like he realizes okay there's a bomb that's got to go off like there were explosives involved it's not over yet how do we know when the bomb's going to go off well we know oh okay he's gonna he wants all of the gas to be in the room you know so even if he hadn't come through the window and opened that window 
the the explosion would have opened the window. You know, the explosion would have right. dispersed the gas one way or the other. So he's like, okay, well, when would the bomb go off? Well, the bomb would go off when all of the gas was expelled from the tanks. Okay, so let's figure out how long that would take. And both in the movie and the book, they tr- pull out their tusty t- trusty tape measure to measure the volume of the canister to determine how long it's going to take. A couple of problems here. First of all... <laughs> They know how much gas was stolen, so they shouldn't need to measure the volume of the tanks. Second of all, the volume of the tanks isn't going to be the determining factor. It's going to be the flow rate from the valves that are attached to the tanks. That's what they need to figure out. Not only how much gas is in there, but what's, what's the flow rate on that valve? And they have no idea. They're guessing at that, which makes the exact measurement he needs of 16 minutes worthless. Right. And second of all, they're measuring these tanks that have 10 pounds of plastic explosives strapped to the outside that they don't know about yet, which they're not taking into account. So none of those calculations meant a dang thing. No, no. 16 minutes should have been more like nine minutes or something. Yeah, who knows? Because, I was like, yeah, you don't no. need to measure the volume. You know how much was stolen. You know that those were 500-pound tanks. They're, they say it several times that these were 500-pound tanks. They have half a ton of gas because they have two 500-pound tanks. They know how much gas they, that there is. They don't need to measure the tanks for that. What they need to find out is the flow rate on the valve if they're going to determine how long it's going to take. And then there was a little change between the movie and the book that I didn't quite understand. Um, In the book, both tanks have explosives on them, which makes sense. In the movie, they only put explosives on one of the tanks, which would have made one of the tanks a different size than the other one. And if they did manage to separate them, it wouldn't do any good. Whereas in the book, both tanks have explosives. Even if they managed to get them kind of far apart, the explosion would probably still mix enough gas to kill a lot of people. Like it right. wasn't for the fact that they figured it out and threw it out the window that saved everybody. If they were still on the same floor of that apartment building, even separated by a couple of rooms, two 10-pound uh, explosions of C4 would have been enough to mix enough gas to kill a lot of people still. So I don't know why they chose to only put explosives on one canister in the movie. That was an odd choice, I thought. No, I thought the same thing, too, in the in the movie itself. I just think it's funny that, you know, I think you find enjoyment in finding the scientific wrong <laughs> because Michael Crichton is so detailed in the science of stuff and the technology and everything that I think you just find some personal enjoyment in um, telling him how it should be done because <laughs> <laughs> the, the one thing, the one nitpicky thing, I love it. The one little thing, yeah. It's, other than that, the, the science in this film is, is pretty good. I mean, they did make up this gas that they're talking about, the, this uh, V. VZ gas, which is supposed to be a hundred times stronger than VX gas, which is already a pretty nasty thing, but they wanted right. to make an even nastier thing for the purposes of the book. And I get it. They, you know, books and movies do that all the time. I mean, even when they've sure. used, you know, The Rock, the movie, which not a good movie by any objective standards, but still a fun movie to watch. I'll still go back and watch The Rock any old time. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> They took some, uh, you know, license with the VX gas. You know, they they used the real name, but they definitely took a lot of license to how it worked. You know, uh, VX gas will not melt your face off, no matter what you've seen in The Rock. That's not that's not <laughs> how it works. Um, Binary actually uh, described the effects of the gas uh, more accurately. They just made up this super powerful version of it so that it would be even scarier than regular VX gas. Yeah. The uh, thing I want to nitpick about is more so just 
not Michael Crichton as much as the publisher, because the cover of this book pretty much has a naked woman on it. And there was like one single tiny female part in this whole thing. And I think she was like a scientist or something like that. There was zero romance or love interest, which at the time <laughs> was really odd for like a mystery spy, you know, James Bond type of thing. I mean, there should have been if it was going to be a typical, but there wasn't at all. I just think that it's funny that um, there is pretty much this naked woman on the cover of the book itself. <laughs> that must have been, I, I know the um, original, the, you know, the first release, the, the first edition of this, um, the cover is just the word binary with the two tanks as the eye. Right. So it didn't, it didn't have that. And I know they've re-released it for the purposes of the, the, the mid-school years and such. And the mid-school years cover doesn't have a woman on it either. It's uh, like a kind of comic draw, drawing style um, cover of a man holding a gun and you know hiding around the corner are these two tanks um, with somebody's finger on the button to, to set them off or something like that. So I'm not sure which version uh, you got that had this uh, this woman on the cover. Well, it's it's um, I got to look and see what the actual year was, but it's a Michael Crichton writing as John Lange. Binary is what it is, and it's got the two canisters still, and it's red. But there's this woman sitting there, you know, oh, covering okay. herself I think, in the front. I think they do use that one for the audiobook. If I if I look at the thumbnail okay. for the audiobook, I think that's the yeah. the same cover that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely no, no reason whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> for, so. For, other than to maybe sell a couple of books. Right. So at some point, the publisher thought, oh, we're going to get on Michael Crichton's name because, well, so here's a fun uh, thing that I didn't realize. You, know, Everybody who knows Michael Crichton now that are of our age more than likely knew about him because of Jurassic Park or something along those lines. Like that was his heyday <laughs> when he had Jurassic Park and, and ER and these books and all this stuff going on at once. But that was really like kind of as a second explosion. I feel like his first explosion was definitely right around when Binary and Pursuit came out because he had multiple books at this time. He had Binary out, and uh, he also had, what was the um, the one he wrote with his brother? It also was out at the same time frame. That was a made-for-TV movie. The the Dealing, or the Berkeley-Boston yes. 40 Brick Lost Bag Blues? <laughs> That's the one. So he had that going on at the same time, yeah. but he also at this time had um, Andromeda Strain out as Michael Crichton. So yeah. he had multiple books. And the, uh, the carry actual... treatment was released uh, in the same year as well. Yep. Yeah. So this kind of was like an explosion. I um, I wish I could find something. I feel like this is when he realized, uh, you know what? I'm not going to be a surgeon anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wanted to do the directing. He has his directorial debut the next year. He had Westworld come out. Um, Andromeda Strain came out in, a, in the actual theaters, not just this made-for-TV movie. Uh, this was his first big explosion, and it happened in the early 70s, right around when this was made. Yeah, and I find it interesting, though, that while he did use his name for the director credit, they still have it listed, even when the movie came out, it was still, you know, based on a novel by John Lang, not you know, Michael Crichton writing as John Lang, at that point, he was still holding that pseudonym for the actual novel. Like, mm -hmm. he wasn't claiming credit for the novel itself, but he was claiming credit for directing the movie. Yeah, he was, and um, by this time, he had already written Andromeda Strain and The Terminal Man, So, and those were both under Michael Crichton. So I wonder if this is, like, his guilty pleasure writing type of thing, because it was the quick <laughs> read, you know? And cause this was his last one. This was, yeah, this was too, the I last believe, one right? written under the yeah. pseudonym. Um, prior to that, he had written... Grave Descend in 1970. Um, so he, a couple of years between those, and in those couple of years, he wrote the Andromeda Strain under his own name. So really, 
the this was his transitioning period is what was happening going on here because this is also when he then got into movies and uh, the directing and then eventually we got into um, a couple of screenplays so uh, but yeah, I just I didn't realize uh, but maybe that's what it is these were his guilty pleasure books he liked to write <laughs> yeah he, he might have just wanted to separate you know because if you look at the Andromeda Strain as a novel compared to Binary as a novel it's a completely different oh. style. I mean, totally so much yeah. more thinking necessary for the Andromeda Strain. I mean, it's so much more deep into the science. It's a lot more technical, uh, a lot more detailed. Um, and the character development is, is different as well. It, they actually spend more time developing the characters as opposed to just these quick bang-bang reads, which I think the majority of the John Lang novels are probably more along the lines of binary, where they're just quick boom, 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 done, here's your story, and you go. Which is fine if that's what you're looking for. And in fact, I really enjoyed this book. I very much enjoyed this book because it was exactly what it was. It was just a quick, easy read, and you get through fast, you get the story. Um, you don't need a whole lot extra. You know, the, the science that is there is minimal and is explained well enough that you don't need to sit there and really think about it. You know, they're talking about the gas itself and how it works as a two-part system and things like that. Um, that's what I love is that even though it is this quick kind of easy read, you still do have these deeper themes going on if you look for it. And uh, it was just fantastic. Like, it, like you said, this is definitely a great time of his writing. I'm looking forward to reading these other John Lang novels to see how they compare uh, to binary. Right. Well, and uh, in his own word, he said that he wrote these books as competition for in-flight movies. He wanted something people could read in an hour and a half, you know, and so that's very much so why we have two different author names, I'm sure, because you're right, Andromeda Strain, uh, you cannot read that fast. you got to take <laughs> and absorb that. There's a lot of science and a lot going on in there. Um, but in it, at the same point, yeah, it makes me want to go read the rest of these John Lang books because they're just a fast-paced, quick read uh, in the evening type of thing, and you're done, and you just soaked up an adventure. And I th he said, you know, he likes to write them fast because he's in, and it gets something off his back. So he is still saying something about whatever was going on in society then, or or whatever science or political or just thinking thing he had. He is still telling you something. He's just doing it at a much quicker pace. Yeah, and I think the the thing you're supposed to take away from this one, if you're if you're delving a little bit deeper into it, is this whole the idea that no one thing necessarily can make big changes by itself. That you do need two or more parts to to really affect change. And that's uh, you know one of the one of the brief things they're talking about in the book that they skip over in the movie, but in the book they talk about some of the things that Wright had uh, written and published some documents that he had put out there about uh, probability and statistics and, you know, refuting the idea, uh, for example, you know, in baseball when somebody is due for a hit because they haven't got one in a while. Um, you know, totally refuting, you know, obviously based on, you know, the principles of science and mathematics, that's not the case. You know, you're either going to hit it or you're not, but each at-bat is a separate individual instance that relies on all of the components that are happening right then, not whether or not you've gotten one before, you know, that doesn't matter. 
Right. And, you know, some of these these other things that he'd written about, <clears throat> about trying to place blame for certain historical things on one particular factor and the fact that you can't do that because these major things happen because of many different factors. Some may weigh more heavily than others, but there's always going to be more than one factor involved. And I think that might be the the message, so to speak, that he was trying to get across along this fast-paced action adventure book. Mm-hmm. No, and so it's uh, – I highly suggest picking it up and reading it or if you're Eric, you know, listen to it two times as fast. So, <laughs> Yeah, like I said, it's available on uh, Audible. I picked it up on uh, ebook through the Kindle app. It was also very cheap there. I think it was like six or seven bucks. So it's not, not an expensive book to pick up and it might even be something you might find in your local library. You know, this is a, an older novel and it's something that you might find, you know, easily somewhere, you know, or – a used bookstore somewhere no reason not to pick it up and own a copy of this uh, whether it be physical or digital um it's definitely well worth the six or seven bucks you might spend on it right well and i uh, i'm excited to read it i'm excited also I, i've got to read uh dealing the berkeley to boston 40 break lost back blues um just because this that i feel like that's gonna i'm gonna laugh in that one you know and <laughs> it's just interesting to see these very different versions of writing from the same person yeah yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one as well. Uh, I'm, I'm going to check out more of the John Lang novels as as well, and just kind of <clears throat> just want to soak up everything he's everything he's done. Mm-hmm. No, uh, same here. So I, I, you know, I was trying to think if there's any lasting thing uh, on binary, but I don't think so. I my favorite part is you put it beautifully when you said that the binary is these two parts. Everything was in two parts, and they both can work separately from each other, but together it creates something larger. And uh, and even just the relationship between Graves and Wright, that's exactly how I felt. Um, and so it was a little heartbreaking when Wright does die. And um, and I, I feel like at the end of this, this is I feel like if we were to read the post on Graves that he retired, like this was his last thing, like there was nothing else, you know, um, he was done. Yeah, it's very possible. I, I do like the um, the little bit of postscript we get in the book where they talk about how the whole reason that this was able to happen was because the security measures the government was taking regarding these type of, of materials, whether it be parts for nuclear weapons or whether it be gases, you know, nerve agents, they weren't taking the proper precautions to keep them out of the hands of a determined and wealthy, smart individual. And so they have all of these, you know, they, they recommended we change this and we change this and we change this. And then all of those recommendations were thrown out as being too expensive and they didn't do a dang thing. And nothing changed. Yep. And it was like a, just a warning shot was what that was and nothing changed. Yep. And in the movie, they do it a little differently where they just show, um, you know, them, them walking away from the scene after everything's happening. And they're like talking about, well, what can we do to prevent this in the future? And uh, the, the doctor, the, the expert on the VZ gas, just like, it's only one thing you can do. Worry. Worry. Yep. <laughs> and that was it because uh, it totally could happen again or something. Yeah. So all told, I did def- definitely enjoy both the novel and the movie. Uh, the novel more so for sure. But uh, I would recommend checking out the movie if you can as well. I mean, I had to pick it up on DVD to find it. I that was the only way I could too. Yeah, so yeah, the movie is going to be harder to pick up than the book. But uh, yeah, <laughs> ended up it, it didn't end up costing too much. I picked it up on uh, DVD through Amazon. Uh, the first time I had looked, it was like twenty bucks, and then I looked again like a week later, and it was on sale for nine bucks. So I was like, okay, I'll grab it now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it might be one of those things that uh, you might find in a few parts on YouTube somewhere as well. I, I don't know. I didn't really check for that. So it might be out there. But yeah, if you can find a way to watch it, I would definitely recommend giving it a watch. Um, but if I'm, if you're only going to do one or the other, I would say read the book. Yeah, no, definitely I would say read the book and uh, and enjoy it because it's just going to be a good, quick read over an airplane flight. Yeah, very easy, very quick, and uh, fun. Uh, a good, fun read. 